Welcome to the third episode of Newcomer. I'm Eric Newcomer. Excited for you to listen to an interview with John McNeil, a former chief operating officer at Lyft and a former top executive at Tesla. He knows Elon Musk well. Now he's an investor at DVX, which is a hatch investor. John is also on a bunch of boards. We talk about CrossFit, Lululemon. So someone who really sees the breadth of the business world. So we talk a lot about the management that he learned at Lyft and Tesla. I think he's a little spicier about Lyft and interesting to hear his thoughts on Musk for sure. And then we talk a little bit about blitz scaling and sort of the challenges of that model in a world where interest rates are higher. I thought it was interesting, particularly in light of our first episode with Reed Hoffman, who has been a big proponent. Give it a listen. Before we get there, I want to thank our launch sponsor, Vanta. Newcomer is brought to you by Vanta. To close and grow major customers, you have to earn trust. But demonstrating your security and compliance can be time-consuming, tedious, and expensive until you use Vanta. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for the most sought-after security and privacy standards. Save time and money on compliance with Vanta's enterprise-ready trust management platform. For a limited time, newcomer listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Go to vanta.com slash newcomer to get started. And now here's our episode with John McNeil. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. Thanks for coming on, John. Yeah, glad to be here. I feel like the first time we really spent time together, you were the chief operating officer of Lyft, and I was following you around in Las Vegas as you were setting up driver operations stuff there, right? Yeah, I think so. We got some quality time when I was in that role. Yeah. Probably 2018, 2019. So yeah, three, four years ago. Yeah. So we're going to jump around your story and there's so much I want to talk about, but I mean, you were at Tesla, very senior there. Obviously I met you through the Lyft context. Now you're an investor with a strong thesis. We're going to talk about that. You're on a bunch of boards. You're on the what GM board. Are you also CrossFit? Is that right? Or you're involved? And and Lululemon. How did you CrossFit? I just, I, I don't know the story at all. I don't know what I'm opening up, but what is the story with the CrossFit one? So it's kind of a fun story. One of the guys I worked with my first job out of college, his life was changed by CrossFit and so much so. And he's such a good manager that way back in 2010, he and I were having a breakfast together and I said, you got to buy that company because you'd be just the right person to run it. And so uh, through a series of events, he got to know the founder and didn't go anywhere. It almost went somewhere, but it didn't go anywhere. And then in 2019, 2020, the founder needed a buyer. And so he reached back out to my friend and my friend ended up winning the deal and asked me to join the board. And I'm not a CrossFitter, but I've kind of become one in the process. You're like a all-purpose entrepreneur at this point, right? I mean, there's deep focus in auto, which like with Tesla, Lyft, I think you have a company now sort of in in that space and GM board, obviously. But like you really started with entrepreneurship first. My stuff as an entrepreneur kind of started as a kid. I grew up in this household that was awesome, but we didn't have much money. So we had to figure out how to buy our own clothes and shoes. And so I started this landscaping business when I was eight years old so I could buy a pair of shoes. And that experience was seminal for me because I kept it all through high school and it paid for my first car. It paid for a big chunk of my college. Hmm. Uh, 
And I got to college and I knew the only things I learned about business were things that I had learned between eight and 18 myself and reading a lot of stuff. So my first job out of college was at Bain Consulting. And I happened to sit outside of the conference room where Bain Capital was and this little group called Information Partners, which was basically what is now Bain Ventures. And I started to work with them. I knew some of the guys pretty closely. And it was through that process I discovered or rediscovered I was an entrepreneur. And so one of the guys handed me a business plan and said, I think this could be really interesting for you. And it turned out it was. So I hopped out of venture capital and started my first company with Bain Ventures as a backer, which was awesome. And, and was uh, that a, was it a startup? It was a pure startup. Use the word? Pure startup. Okay. It was a software company that sold software that runs call centers. Call centers were a new thing in the early nineties and people hadn't written much software to help run them. And so we did, we wrote the software and we were computer scientists. So we said to ourselves, we only want one set of code. We want to run off one server and we want to serve all these clients. So we want multi-tenant single set of code, which today, you know, is SAS, but we weren't smart enough to, right. to bake a name out of it. And so we started this company. It was right place, right time. It took off and it was called First Notice Systems or FNS. And 18 months later, we sold it to a public company. And then I started a second company that really came out of this experience my wife had. Her car was hit by one of our neighbors. It was a terrible experience getting it fixed. And as I got to know the industry, I figured out that the collision industry was a $50 billion industry with like no modern manufacturing or supply chain approach at that time. And so we started a company that today is the largest collision repair company in the country. It's owned by Carlisle. And it was another heck of a ride. And that was bought by an auto insurance company, Allstate. And then I stayed at Allstate for two years and saw all kinds of opportunities to write software for insurance companies. So started a third company out of that experience called Inservio, which was a SaaS platform that served the insurance companies. So yeah, you've sat at this intersection between sort of tech and the real world. And I wanted to touch a couple just so people could okay. sort of get some flavors of that. And I want to just like frame this up with sort of a big question, which is just like, do you believe in blitz scaling? You know, I had Reed Hoffman on the podcast. He's been a yeah. big advocate of that. You know, like Lyft and the Uber Wars, which, you know, I wrote a ton about. Yeah. Felt like all about blitz scaling. And certainly some of these electric car companies like a Rivian or something, it's like, okay, we're going to raise so much money to compete with the likes of Tesla. You know, Tesla probably had a slower ramp up there in terms of spend. How do you think about blitz scaling and do you believe in it and did you ever do you now yeah what do you think about it so i love reed too and he's given me some similar advice as a friend and as an investor over time i think blitz scaling is appropriate when interest rates are zero when capital's free how's <laughs> that for an answer you know right, people are yeah. going to hand you free capital then you make different decisions and there yeah. was an era like you just described where capital was free and so you could go out and burn capital to acquire customers in a business that didn't have its economics figured out yet. And Rideshare was a good example of that. And you could burn through a lot of investor capital because basically every time you raised, it didn't cost you much in terms of valuation. Because just the way valuations work, when you value a terminal value and divide by zero, it's free money. Now, when you divide right. by 5% or 6% or 20%, depending on what the rate of capital is, it would lead you to a different conclusion. So... When interest rates are now non-zero, 
I don't believe blitzscaling is appropriate because you can't afford the cost of capital to go do that. So you actually have to make the business work. And one of the things that I loved about working with Elon was because I had been an entrepreneur before we met. I t- had this mindset of like really successful. This had been burned in my brain by a mentor. Really successful entrepreneurs can run a business on minimal cash and be creative and you have to have the best people and you got to get a lot out of those people. But that was an ethos that I shared when I joined Tesla and I totally got the culture because that was it. It was like minimal capital, maximum talent applied to big problems and get as much out of that talent as you can. And therefore, blitzscaling isn't appropriate. Do you think the companies that were blitzscaling, however we're conjugating that word, do you think they can make the transition to this interest rate environment? I mean, I guess one challenge with blitzscaling, if it only works in a zero interest rate environment and you learn the wrong lessons for any other interest rate environment and most of human financial history there are interest rates above zero, then maybe it seems dangerous, even in that brief, wonderful moment of free money that you're going to learn wrong lessons. Or can companies escape blitzscaling? That's the question. Yeah, they can. And you have to have super talented leadership to do it. And so like, let's use Uber and Lyft as a case study here. So you get this professional manager that comes in, Dara, and Dara comes into Uber and is able to create a market cap above their amount of capital raised because starts to rationalize costs, gets rid of all the cash burners that he can. So gets rid of autonomous, which is burning a ton of cash, gets rid of international markets, which are burning a ton of cash, turns those into investments on the balance sheet that end up helping the P&L as they get liquid. And so in contrast, you've got Lyft, which has raised far more capital than its market cap. It raised somewhere between 15. How and much 20, is it? We raised somewhere between 15 and 20 billion, and its market cap today is less than five. And if you deduct the cash that's on the balance sheet, it's way less than five. And so I think to have a successful business over time, you have to have really professional managers that come in that are capable of taking a company from blitzscaling into positively free cash flow, which Dara has done. To read between the lines a little bit on this for the listener, you were the chief operating officer of Lyft for what, a little under two years, the professional management, like what would you have liked to see them do that they haven't done since you left? Yeah, just there were a number of at the time who were arguing that we really needed to address the expense base, get pricing discipline so you get more revenue on the top line, address the expense base on the bottom line. There are still more engineers at Lyft than there are Tesla. Tesla is approaching $100 billion in actual revenue and hardware, and then diversify into other lines of business that would leverage the driver base, like food delivery. Right. And so you know, a number of us lost those arguments and, and left as a result. And unfortunately, the scoreboard reflects the outcome. Yeah. Do you think anybody would buy a lift or like... I, mean, I think the challenges, a, it's a the challenges you've got... Yeah, it's very costly. There are a lot of bargains in the market today. And in this case, you've got founders with super voting shares, which is sort of a very difficult issue to get through and maybe a non-starter for most buyers. The founders have been at it so long. I don't know. I would think at some point (laughs) they would be willing to relinquish power for... Yeah, maybe they get tired at some point. Maybe. We'll come back to Tesla, maybe a little bit more lift. But I wanted to talk about your investing firm, DVX. Like, It seems born out of this idea that we're not in a zero interest rate environment anymore, right? Or 
Can you talk a little bit about sort of the firm and sort of your ideas behind create? Like, are you calling it a venture firm? I guess that's, you know, the language. It, not question. really. Is it like, a venture I, firm? I, it's not. I call it a hatch platform for this reason. We only work on our own ideas. We really, really research the heck out of these ideas and prove them out. And then we take that idea and start with a little nugget, an MVP, a minimum bio product, put that out in the market, start to learn, start the feedback loop. And we run these companies through a series of stage gates that then once we've proven that they've got product market fit and go to market fit, then we really launch the scaling chapter of the company and bring in a team and let them at it in terms of running the company. How many partners do you have? I have three other partners. So there are four of us. We create companies. Some people call it this a venture studio. Some people would call it an incubator. I just call it a hatch platform. In two years, we've launched seven companies and four externally funded, which is our validation point when somebody else comes in and says, hey, we think you've got something here that's worth investing in. And how much capital are you investing? We started with the first tranche of capital of 50 million to start these seven companies. So it gives you a sense of the capital efficiency as we're getting them to investable quality because we're kind of applying what we've been talking about, which is let's not hyperspend, let's prove that we've got a business here and then we'll add capital to the fire, but not until. And as an investor, like a big advantage of this is that you own a much larger percentage of the company going into series A than if this were- a seed, That's right. seed investor or what are the dynamics? That's right. Yeah. When we start the company, we own a hundred percent of it. And so this is very different economics than venture where you're trying to own somewhere between five and 20%. It gives us a lot of leverage as we work through the funding cycle on these businesses. And how do you attract sort of a CEO in that situation where, I mean, obviously they haven't come up with the idea. So I imagine they're happy to have this great company, but what's the dance there in terms of attracting a CEO? It's a really good question. This was inspired by, as I was a CEO, I was in different CEO groups, ran across a lot of CEOs who would say, I'd love to start a company, but I don't have an idea. Right. And there are a lot of those people walking around that are super talented. And so we come to people like that with not only an idea, but an idea that's been de-risked because we've already done the work to prove product market fit, go to market fit, make sure the unit economics work, that we've got a big TAM for them to go attack. And so then we can bring a CEO, a really cool early stage company that if they're wired to start something early, but don't have an idea, we're kind of an answer for that. And for all these companies, the goal still is to raise a series A from a venture fund. Is that right? Or are there some that will never need capital or other sources of capital? Well, no, the goal is for us to get the right investors in alongside us at series A. And sometimes earlier, but generally it's Series A, because we want to A, prove that we're not smoking our own product and think we've got a great company and keep pouring capital in, but others aren't willing to. So this is a check for us, a check and balance to make sure that we've got something that others see value into and that they're willing to validate that by, by writing a check and invest. These are generally venture groups. All right. So which companies for this along? Are you said... Seven, four of raised money. Yeah, walk us through a couple of the faves. So we've got, you'll see like how completely different these ideas are, but they generally come out of experiences we've had. So one is in cyber insurance. And what we saw there was an opportunity in a very large market that's growing very fast to come at the problem very differently. Everybody else in the industry was focusing on the outside in. So mainly what they do is test a company's defenses and see how effective they are come from the outside. 
we wanted to start from the inside out and say, what's the tech stack? Is it effectively configured? Is it turned on for all users, et cetera? And getting that data, we knew was going to be really hard, but potentially a moat. So we figured out how to get that data, how to price cyber insurance and make it super easy for people to understand. So it's a little bit like car insurance. You get today, you know, you put an app on your phone, you get a driver score and you get car insurance. In this case, you put our software in, you get a score, you get cyber insurance. So that's a company called Root. And we've got several VCs in alongside us. It's a huge market. It's one I'm really excited about. For something completely different in the auto space, we took the team that invented mobile service for cars at Tesla. One of the things we discovered at Tesla was that 80% of what needed to be fixed on a car could be done in the customer's driveway or in their office parking lot. And one day we woke up and said, there's a much bigger market for this, much bigger TAM. And that's all cars. So why don't we take that team and apply that to all cars? So this is a company called Kirby, and it's in 29 markets right now in Northern California. And now it's moving into Arizona and it's starting its multi-state expansion. But what they do is they provide on-site mechanical services for cars. You wanted to do that, a similar idea at Lyft too, right? I mean, the sort of mobile, or there was an opportunity to serve we did. The driver's cars, right? Exactly. Because every time a driver's car is down, they're not making money. So the idea was we could, we could send cars out to get these cars fixed. It was in service of a long-term vision. We have this long-term vision for Kirby, which is autonomous vehicles are going to operate in cities. Cities have largely been gutted of places to get your car fixed. And autonomous vehicles are going to largely be electric. So you don't want to drive them into a central depot and waste the charge to get them fixed or serviced. You want something to come to them. And so the long range vision for Kirby is they become the service platform for autonomous fleets and cities. But along the way, we're serving regular consumers who need to get their cars fixed too. Mostly electric cars or any kind of car? Any kind of cars. Yeah. Any kind of cars. What do most people need? It is like an oil change situation? or Yeah, you can do anything from an oil change to swap out somebody's brakes to belts and other things in a customer's driveway. So anything you don't need to basically put a car up on a lift for and get underneath, you can do in a customer's driveway. So literally we'll road trucks to take care of just about anything that needs to be fixed on a customer's car. When I launched my newsletter first, like I feel like I had five, 10, you know, stories I really wanted to do. You know, I'd been thinking about them for a long time. And then you come out of the gate, eventually you write those yeah. stories. And then you're like, oh man, I have this story creation machine and I need to have more than just the ones that I had a couple of years to like stew about when I, you know, didn't like, you know, what my bosses at Bloomberg thought. I'm sure some of these ideas clearly came out of learnings at Tesla and Lyft and elsewhere. How do you get the confidence that you'll keep coming up with ideas and do you have any sort of, I don't know, method or how do you generate a new business idea if you have to keep pumping them out? For new founders, we have a total method around this. So we have a method around our entire process. And at the beginning of the process, it's coming up with these ideas. And so we have an ideation session once a month at DVX, where it's not just partners, it's the whole firm that comes together and says, I got an idea. What do you think about this? And we literally will riff on these ideas. And that's one source. And we've got 35 to 50 ideas at a time we're looking at that basically are internally generated. Then we'll also do some proactive work where we'll say, hey, there's a big theme happening in the economy, like electrification. And what are some of the non-obvious things that are going to happen five to 10 years from now if we electrify like big chunks of transportation, for instance? 
And then we'll go looking for ideas proactively within that theme and we'll research the themes. And then, as I mentioned, we'll come up with an idea. If one comes to the forefront as really, really attractive and it's got a big market. So three things we look for are very large markets, profitability, opportunity above 50% gross margins, and a unique way for us to win, like a moat. And if we got all three things, then we'll work into launching a company. And we run these companies through stage gates. And so far, we've launched 10 companies. Seven have made it through all of the stage gates. Three were killed along the process, where we either couldn't get product market fit, we thought it was there. We thought we were going to be able to get it. We couldn't, or we couldn't get the internet economics to work. And we'll kill something if we don't think it's going to work. But it all starts at that first idea stage, and we've got to have a very big, robust funnel of ideas. How do you figure out that the gross margins for something like Kirby will be above 50%? You get, in the, you like, get into the business and you start to test it. So literally, we got into a few markets in the Bay Area, and the team's first goal was prove product market fit. And once we got to our metrics on product market fit, then it was proved gross margins. And when they were able to prove a path to gross margins, then we said, okay, now let's prove the CACs and LTVs. Let's prove our go-to-market economics. And once they prove all three of those things, they're off to the races, which Kirby did. But a couple of our companies couldn't get through those stage gates and we had to kill them. I mean, back to sort of the big blitz scaling zoom out. So there was the blitz scaling, which is just you know, we can put a lot of cash into something, even if it's like an Airbnb or more clearly software sort of platform business to make it work. But I think there's a related phenomenon to blitzscaling, which is also just, we can do things in the real world. You know, it's like Travis at Uber saying, you know, atoms instead of bits or whatever, right? It was sort of that yeah. idea that like, you can make real world stuff work because you're willing to throw enough money at it. And I think some people now, it's like, okay, there was too much money, but there's also a questioning about sort of the real world piece of tech in a higher interest rate environment. You know, everybody's excited about AI now. It's like the least right. you know, sort of tangible, physical, real world thing. I mean, yeah. Do you think the venture model can still sustain something like Kirby or something? Like, does that make sense as a venture business in this higher interest rate environment? Or do you think VCs are going to move on from anything that really tries to move atoms? I think, you know, you've got to have a skill set that helps a business get started that can deal in the real world. And those are generally operators that have been in the real world. And maybe the best example of that is biotech. Biotech, you're moving molecules and you're getting molecules and proteins to do things that haven't been done in history and that's real world science getting applied. And I don't think any of us would argue that like Moderna wasn't a good investment. For right. flagship. It was. Flagship's very much like us. They start companies from scratch. They work them through a series of stage gates and they do that in the physical world. Not all of our businesses move atoms, but we're not afraid of businesses that do move atoms because we've run these kind of real world businesses at scale. And we know what good product looks like, what good teams look like, what good go to market looks like. And so we feel like we're uniquely kind of skilled to help in a business that, like Kirby that could be very large. Annually, people spend more than $200 billion getting their car fixed. It's a very big market. So if right. you can attack a very large market with a high gross margin model that people love, yeah, that's pretty, that's investable. So Tesla, let's go back. How did you connect with Elon in the first place? Or how did you get to Tesla? So I was, as we talked about, I was a serial entrepreneur. I had just started my sixth company, which was basically the software that 
powers all of the driver scores you see insurance companies now talking about. So if you see the State Farm app or the Allstate app or the Progressive app or Geico app that scores your driving, that's our technology that's driving that. So I just started that company. And through a series of crazy events, Sheryl Sandberg introduced Elon and I. And we hit it off because I think our backgrounds as entrepreneurs, but I had had experience in manufacturing and a lot of experience in auto. And so we immediately just hit it off. We, when we met each other, Elon said, Hey, I want your perspective on this problem I'm having in the factory. And so yeah. like I said, I've seen that kind of problem before. We broke down the problem and said, like, here probably where you're going to find the constraints and then the solutions. And so we talked through it. He went and applied what we talked about. It worked. So we got on a second phone call, it's a similar thing, but very different. He said, here's a problem I'm having in my, in my distribution sales channel. What do you think? And so we worked through that problem together. Were you interviewing in your mind or? You no, were just like, like we were just getting to know each other. Like I was getting to know somebody and I really like, you know, his, he's got a fascinating mind. He's got a super unique intellect and is very d- deeply involved in the business still. And so we were able to get into the depths of a problem, not at a theoretical level, but at a factual level, because he had the facts, because he was involved in the business. And whether it was a manufacturing problem, a distribution problem, a marketing problem, whatever, we just kind of started to brainstorm about these, started to talk more often. And then eventually he said, hey, would you join Tesla? And I said, what did you join I, I haven't, us? I haven't had a boss in 20 years. Like this could, I, I don't even know how to do this, but if you're willing to like right. take the risk... Like I'm going to, because I, for me, I felt like I was going to get a chance to learn from the best practitioner of my craft. As an entrepreneur, you can't point to anybody in our space who has created as much value as Elon Musk. What was your title when you came in? President. Yeah. And you were, you were the number two, basically at the time. Well, I was on a team of five or six people, a senior leadership team. All of which, like, we kind of joined arms and, and we really didn't treat each other like we had titles or roles. We were trying to solve big problems and big opportunities and we did it together. So I didn't feel like a number two, three, four, or five. I felt <laughs> like I was on, I felt like I was on this team with Greg and Jerome and Doug and Deepak and Franz, et cetera. And we were arm in arm trying to do the impossible. What was the impossible at that time? Or while you were there, what was the <laughs> so, core challenge? Well, when I joined, the first challenge we had was to make a quarter. They hadn't really made a quarter since they'd been public. And we were more than halfway through the quarter and halfway through the sales goal, and not even close to halfway through the sales right. goal. And so the first challenge was like, how do we sell enough units to actually make plan? That was the first challenge. And business hadn't thought about a funnel before. So I introduced this concept of a funnel, sales funnel, where we had to pull people through the sales funnel and really change our conversion rates. First of all, we had to know our conversion rates and then change them. In an engineering environment, that went a long ways for credibility. Because people said, this hmm. is the first time we've had an executive look at the problem, break it down mathematically, and show us how we can actually hit plan with math. And so we went out to the team worldwide and we made our first quarter. And that was the big, that was a big challenge. And then we made another quarter and then another quarter. But then we had to do things like introducing new models and doing that with no cash, basically, and creating manufacturing lines out of tents 
so we could get these cars out and get the cash generated to get. Uh, were you, were you get, there when Elon said, you know, he looked back and said we could have gone bankrupt? Were you there? Oh, we were. Yeah, yeah. For more than two years, we operated the company and we just had a quarter's worth of cash. So that was for real. Like we could have, without the work of all the people who were Tesla and on the team at that time, for sure, bankruptcy was a reality. And when you're peering over the edge of death, like, creativity starts to happen in really unique ways. And we had a bunch of creative people that really helped us get through that time. Elon clearly likes the sort of pressure cooker environment, right? Like, I don't know. It, it feels like, you know, for most CEOs, you wouldn't want a company that close to death, especially a public company that has some goodwill. Like the company could have been run in a way that it, it wasn't as close to death, right? Or do you think it was intentional to motivate? Well, it was tough to capitalize a company completely that has never shown positive cash flow. And so there was only so much capital you could raise on the way to each new product launch. But each new product launch takes billions of dollars. So there's only so much capital you can raise. And so it's a bit of a pressure cooker. And it's a super hard business. I've never seen a business as hard as the car business, car manufacturing business. And it's why nobody's really created a new successful car company in almost a hundred years. It's really hard. And right. you almost have to be maniacal and crazy to attempt it and to get through it. So by its nature, it's a pressure cooker. And there are different ways people manage through the pressure. And Elon's got his way and I had my way. And that was a largely complimentary. And the rest of the people on the team too, we had this melded kind of approach. It was somewhere on the continuum of frenetic and somewhere on the continuum of calm. And between Calm and Frenetic, we found a path through. And I was super proud to be a part of that. Is he the CEO? Like, you know, he has 100%. SpaceX. I mean, now now it's a different, but he was, he was, you know, doing most of the CEO things you would expect and not just yeah, some absolutely. public figure. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, he's one of the most famous people in the world. Certainly the most, I think, famous business person. I mean, what is sort of the genius like inside the company? I think people see the sort of salesman aspect and sort of the be able to sort of sell the vision, but like what's his sort of strength? Yeah. From inside a company like Tesla. I think people will write books about this someday, but he's got a company that has an operating cadence of seven days, a weekly operating cadence. And what I mean by that is if you're an engineer working on a problem and there are several problems that really matter. And they just presented this at their investor day. So manufacturing really matters. Energy density per dollar really matters. And so there are a few of these big problems that if you're working on, you're in front of the CEO every week showing progress. And if you're not showing progress, you know, there's obviously trouble. And running a company on a weekly cadence like that, a weekly release in hardware is very unique to the auto industry. It's a software approach in hardware and maybe one of the toughest hardware businesses in the world. And that is a key part of the secret sauce, where you've got a CEO challenging viewpoints, challenging physics, challenging manufacturing theory on a weekly basis, and the whole company is getting better as a result of that weekly. Do you borrow from that? Do you think many people can yeah. churn? You know, that cadence requires sort of a lot of effort, and it means that you churn more people you were there three years. A lot of people do churn out of Tesla. Do you think like, I mean, the celebrity and sort of the mission, certainly the mission, the ability to recruit people yeah. to something they believe in. Like, do you think like, you know, I don't know, your average like software business can replicate sort of the Elon management style without? The I think it's really like it's, 
all of us as managers have a style. Like we have a personal style, you got a communication style, you got a management style. And I believe everybody should really find their optimal style for the way they're wired. Elon has that for him. I have that for me. It's different. If I tried to replicate his, it wouldn't work. I don't think mine works for him, but he's got a capability of doing this model with intensity in a really effective way. And it's unique to him. And that's why he's uniquely successful, I think. Have I tried to apply it? Heck yeah. Like we run on a weekly cadence at DVX and we run on a process and we're continually pushing that process and pushing each other. And when we recruited people into Tesla, we would use this analog that you're not getting recruited here for regular army. You're signing up for special forces. What does that mean? That means you're going to be on a small team of highly capable people doing highly intense things. So there is not going to be much downtime. There's going to be a lot of on-task time. And your talk-do ratio has to be way inverted from maybe where you've been before. You've hmm. got to deliver. But when you deliver, I guarantee you, you will be doing the best work of your life. And that's what's addictive about working at Tesla is because you know you can go other places in code. You can go other places in engineering. You can go other places in manage but you probably won't be doing the best work of your life because you're not going to be part of an organization that has that push and cadence. But we try to do this at DVX too. We say, if you're here, we want you to be all in and doing the best work of your life. And this is a method that we use to get there. Do you think that story is still true today for Tesla? I do. When I watch the investor day and I watch the guys that are on that team today who were there and more junior when I was there, but I've worked with all of them. I see that they're continuing that raise the bar, raise the bar, raise the bar, raise the bar. I mean, their aim is to take 50% of the costs out of the manufacturing base over the course of what I think is probably two years. That is super intense, super hard to do. And nobody has done that in their industry and they're setting out to go do it. So yeah, that process and that outcome is definitely perpetuating today. But they're going to need a new vehicle, right? Yeah. When you take 50% of the cost out, you're going to have a new vehicle. You're going to have a mass market vehicle that is very different from the Model 3 today. Oh, you're saying sort of lower the cost of the vehicles they're selling. And they're going to have likely a different design and different mechanicals, different engineering, I mean, probably different chemistry. I don't know. I mean, Elon, he's good at talking about these things for so long. I guess the, the media is so much expectations versus reality. So on the one hand, we're super complicit. It's like, oh, he's willing to set these super high expectations. We've been talking about self-driving. We've been talking about cyber truck you know he has a real truck you know the semi like allegedly you know it's all so the media you know gets and then we seem really negative on elon also because he got us excited about those things early and we're like where are they and then we seem sort of like scolds so i i feel like we're <laughs> unfortunately getting played by elon sort of on both sides and that we're some of the biggest sort of boosters and then also get to be his foil by being overly negative I don't know. Like, are there other, it's, it, it's, a, it's a unique business in that how much they talk about, how much the company talks about things it hasn't delivered on yet. I mean, would you, would you accept that? That it, there's a lot of forward talk in terms of what the company can deliver. I think you're seeing in scale and in a very public way, the way a lot of entrepreneurs work. And that is entrepreneurs tend to set really ambitious targets. Entrepreneurs by nature are optimistic about how long and how much capital it's going to take to get to those targets. They always think it's going to be faster than it really is, but they're setting these ambitious targets out in front of an organization or maybe out in front of themselves. 
And you sort of say, if I hit 80% of that, I'm going to be super psyched, but it's probably not going to be on the time frame that I think it's going to be, but I'm going to push for that. Entrepreneurs are doing this every day. I caught myself doing this in every one of my companies that I built. And people would complain. They would say, you know, you are way too ambitious. You're crazy to think we can get this done this fast. Entrepreneurs hear that constantly. With Elon, you're seeing this in a very public way. But he is unique in that he's not dialing that back to please the public markets, to please the press, et cetera. He's very much just being an entrepreneur. And so I think it's a combination of setting these ambitious targets. But at the same time, he's a rational business person. And he says, okay, here's how much cash flow I can get from these different products. Here's how much cash flow I can get from a Model Y versus a Cybertruck. So guess what? I'm going to choose to produce Model Y across as many factories as I can because the cash flow profile of that is much higher than the Cybertruck. Right. Pickups are largely a North American and South American product. You don't see big pickups in Europe. You don't see them in Asia. But you see hatchback crossover SUVs or CUVs in every market. So he's just making rational decisions at the back end of his business too. I see Mary Barra doing this at GM. She's making very rational decisions about the model lineups, which comes when balancing her P&L and her cash flows and working with her team on vehicle lineup as well. She's doing you know, very similar, really rational, logical approach to managing a balance sheet, which is the other aspect that you have to do. So sometimes the press gets that and sometimes they don't. It wouldn't take much for the press to size the market for Model Y, size the market for Cybertruck, and figure out this is exactly why he's delaying Cybertruck. But I feel like the press doesn't do their homework. Because go, go with what's working, <laughs> the thing you know you can make money off. Well, go, go with the thing that has the larger TAM and the larger cash, free cash flow profile. And the thing that you're already producing and make it produce more at scale, yeah, you're going you're gonna to deliver a different... But, I, I can't help but argue a little bit. But there are questions about the used car market and the signal that that's sending about Tesla's vehicles, right? I mean, do you worry about... I think when you're moving price vehicle? around as much, yeah, one of the downsides of moving price around as much as Tesla's moved it around for the last few years is the used car impact of that. Or the, just the, the value of the vehicle that somebody's taken a loan out on or somebody's taken a lease out on. And yeah, there are definitely downstream effects to some of those decisions. They're not positive for consumers. Right. I mean, but you don't think it hurts Tesla, the company? I would say it hasn't hurt demand so far. It may in the future, but it hasn't hurt demand so far. Self-driving cars. You experienced them in some form of Tesla. You know, certainly at Lyft, there were partnerships and work. You're on the board of GM. You were saying, you know, for Kirby, it's still premised on a long-term self-driving future. What's your sense of the timeline now? You know, the timeline has been slower, I think, than people thought, and that's hurting some 100%. of these businesses. Yeah. Do you have a sense of, I don't know, how optimistic are you that we're going to see real movement there? I think we're now in the precipice. Like GM is the majority shareholder of Cruise. Cruise has deployed driverless autonomous cars on the streets of San Francisco through the whole city, one of the most difficult environments in the world. They've now deployed them in Austin and Phoenix and are deploying them across the country. Waymo is doing something similar. And I think although the solution's been a long time coming in autonomy, now we're actually seeing the rollout of this technology and the commercialization of the technology. So now you can go take a driverless ride in a number of cities in the U.S. And it's as normal as hailing any other kind of ride share. Do they have although full coverage of these cities? Or Cruise has full coverage of the cities that it's in. Yeah. So including San Francisco. So it's, hmm. it's wall to wall in San Francisco. 
So I do think it's been a long time coming, but now we're on it and the rollout is happening. And that's really exciting for me. I think and a lot of people to see because the, the goal isn't just the magical experience of having nobody in the driver's seat. The goal is eliminating the 50,000 deaths that happen as a result of car accidents that are almost 90, 95% plus caused by human error. So if we can get 50,000 families not to experience a tragedy, like a death every year, right? A big deal. And that's in, that's just in the US. Our roads are safer than the rest of the worlds in, in the world. So if you could roll this out worldwide, you're talking about saving a million and a half lives every year. It's a really big deal. Right. I mean, I, <laughs> it's crazy to me that human be, I really do think there will be a time where we look back and it's crazy that we let yeah. human beings like drive around at 70 miles per hour, just like right next to each other. And it'll seem like right. totally. Yeah. Hopefully, and, yeah, and totally around absurd. on the phone while you're doing that, et cetera. Yeah, totally. But right. we didn't have the technology and now we do. And so thank God, like some really creative people like Kyle at Cruz, some really effective technologists set out to solve this problem. And they have. I still feel like, I feel like I would feel it more if it were so close or it feels like they're, okay, they're deploying in cities, but most people, you know, I feel like my friends in San Francisco doesn't sound like they're taking autonomous vehicles all the time or like. What's the limiting factor for it to be a real like economic mover for those cities and for society? I think these, you know, these cities have literally just opened up over the past few months to this. And so I think right now you've got folks that were early adopter, including myself, who are doing this. And now you'll see it move to the mass market as, you know, let's say that next time you and I get together for a coffee in San Francisco and I say, hey, I'm going to hail a cruise. How about you hail a cruise? I'll meet you over here. And that kind of morality is now just starting. And so you'll now see this build over time. It's really like, if you consider like when the first Tesla Roadsters were produced, it was a handful of people in Silicon Valley that had those. And then you started to notice like, oh, geez, Steve Jurvetson's driving one of these things. Jurvetson, why are you driving this? It's a fantastic car. Hop in. Let me show you how fast this thing accelerates. And little by little, you had this virality start. But it starts from a small base. And we're starting from the small base, I think, with autonomous right now. And it will start to become a movement over time. And I think it's not going to take nearly as long as it took for rideshare and some other technologies tool. I do. We were once in an autonomous vehicle together. I think in that, in, in when Las we Vegas. went to Vegas, yeah. I forget what exactly. the partner was, right? That that's, was, that's a motional car that was a partner of Lyfts, but you still had the driver in the seat of that car right. we were in. And this now would be a very different experience because now the right, car is right, right. but there's yeah. nobody in the front seats. Yeah. I mean, the ride sharing phenomenon. I mean, I look back at, to me, like lift line and pool and then autonomous at some point were so key to the like technological vision of ride sharing in that there, yeah. there really would be these efficiency gains by building up the networks. Yeah. That didn't happen, right? Why do you think carpooling didn't work? And does that undermine sort of the case that, you know, ride sharing was a step change over, was it any more than taxi with a phone? If you can't make the carpooling or autonomous features work. I think we were interrupted by this crazy externality, a pandemic. And so, <laughs> That's so true. the carpooling worked until we had a pandemic. And then like this externality came in that nobody anticipated and wisely both Uber and Lyft killed their carpooling product during the pandemic because it would have been irresponsible to do anything else. And now they're building it back. 
but we were interrupted for like two years of adoption when the adoption was super high right. on those products because the economics are great and the social aspects are kind of cool too. But what happened during the pandemic was, you know, obviously we didn't want to be in cars with each other. And so people went out and bought their own vehicle as kind of PPE. And so you remember that like these were record years for car sales over the past two and a half, three years because people were buying their own cars so they wouldn't have to be in a car with somebody else. And I think the whole movement towards far less cars in cities got set back maybe by a decade or more. And I say a decade because the average car park is now 11 to 13 years old. So that means somebody bought a car this year, hmm. probably right. not getting rid of that car for another decade. And it's, therefore, they're going to be in rideshare less and in carpooling less and on public transit less because they have their own way to get around. And they're on the hook for a 72-month loan on that thing. So, yeah, I think that externality of the pandemic really set this vision back, unfortunately. Which also speaks to why, you know, having a delivery business on top of your ride-sharing business. I mean, hard to know that that was a pandemic hedge for Uber, but then that ends yeah. up really that hurting ends up being lived. I mean, I feel like you can get the message like, oh, you should focus on what you're good at. And then it's like, oh, you should have like multiple lines of business. I don't know. How does an entrepreneur like sort sort? Those are just... Two irreconcilable pieces of advice. Generally, I've found that if you have all your eggs in one basket, that is not a very sound strategy. So you yeah. need to have some other forms of income or revenue because, yeah, things can sideswipe you like a pandemic that you'll that you'll never see coming. And that that happens. That happens in the real world. So you need to have other products, other revenue streams that help you weather that storm. And so... Like in Tesla's case today, if the car market goes suddenly sideways and they're selling a lot less cars, they can fall back on their entire base. They're selling insurance into that base. They're selling infotainment into that base. They have diversified revenue sources just beyond selling the car. And Uber did that too. Uber said, we need to have other revenue sources because the world doesn't work straight up and to the right. And so if we're only having one egg in one basket, that's a vulnerable position to be in as an entrepreneur. Just related to delivery and your general expertise on some of these real world tech businesses, I feel like the cloud kitchens, ghost kitchens thing has like fallen out of the conversation a little bit. I mean, they operate more behind the scenes. And I would, I think I saw a TikTok the other day. Someone was like, Oh, I'm ordering from Denny's, which has some rebrand as something else I didn't even realize. Anyway, so they're clearly still going, but do you feel strongly about the sort of ghost kitchen, cloud kitchen business? Are those companies doing well? I don't know. I, I don't know enough about like where they are today because okay. they're pretty opaque in terms of you know how large they are, what sort of revenue they're generating, what sort of profits they're generating. So I just don't, I don't have enough fact base to even answer the question. Okay. Yeah, it's not, your not enough. That's There's, That's yeah, people just aren't divulging kind of how the business is doing. Have you thought about anything in food in your sort of company idea generation or that's, that's not, not yet. Either. Food has not hit the radar. Like we're helping young families with a company called Loop that allows them to rent baby gear and it huh. just had stuff that they need so that, the, you know, in big cities where you don't have much room in an apartment, you can't fill the apartment with stuff. So we're working on problems like that. We're working on high consideration shopping with a platform that we've gotten beta. We are working on HVAC. What's high consideration shopping? Sorry. So that's been high consideration purchase. So like say an expensive purchase, like if you're going to go okay. purchase a washer and dryer or a car, nobody's really attacked that problem in a unique way. And so we've got a team. But is it about work. financing or is it about? No, it's mainly about discovery and comparison. 
Like, okay. how do you compare washers? And what really matters? And it turns out right. that 80% of washers that break are front loaders, not top loaders. So if you knew yeah. that one fact, then that helps your discovery process. It says, maybe I'm not going to look at front loaders. Maybe I should look at top loaders because they break down a lot less. We've got a business working in HVAC and commercial buildings and taking 50% of the energy cost of those buildings out. And so we're working across like a lot of these different problems, but none food related yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the business, like, is that a consumer report sort of like wire? Is it like a media publication or is it we're in beta on this we haven't really talked about a lot of it but okay (laughs) yeah like one of the things that led to this idea was a few of us were shopping for stuff like a washer and dryer and said isn't it interesting like when you go on consumer reports that the products that they're recommending when you go out to buy those products though they have the lowest review scores like how could that Hmm. be and it turns out that it looks like the quality of the consumer reports research and recommendations has gone down precipitously over time. Hmm. And so there's a vacuum in that space to go figure out, like, could somebody fulfill this in a different way? And so a guy on our team who's super talented, Rich Hung, who was part of the early Google shopping effort, he and I kind of started to riff on this idea and shared a vision. And so he's built the platform and now we're out working on the minimum viable product and Hmm. testing it out in the market. But yeah, it'll be some combination of media and comparison tools that haven't existed before and, and some magic that we're throwing into. Your decision to get in this, you know, the hatching business, did you think about sort of the more traditional venture path? And like, I'm curious what, yeah, I, I mean, you, you clearly went this direction, but do you, do you think the venture industry is going to be more, more challenge now, or was there anything about the venture side of things that turned you away from it? Or it was just the appeal. There were a couple of things. There's a, there's, there are a couple of things that I thought were, were ready to be kind of modernized in venture, like the current venture model of searching for entrepreneurs, raising, you know, distributing capital on the, on the part of LPs for a 2% management fee and a 20% carry has not changed in decades. And I thought there well, might sometimes be, they get three and 30, you know, that sometimes they get, yeah. When you get really good at it, <laughs> when you get really good at it, like Sequoia and benchmark and some others, you can get three and 30. But I thought maybe the, maybe there's a more systematic way to go about this. What if there was a systematic way that you could create companies out of great ideas? And so for me, it's just a different approach. I had some friends, close friends who were in the music business and when I discovered like how the music business was kind of structured, this really made sense to me and applies to DVX. There are generally in the music business, there are songwriters who are generating the content. There are performers that proliferate that content and there are distribution that, that take that content plus performers and distribute it. And there are these songwriters guilds where you have people that have this like awesome songwriting disease. And they find each other and they get together in places like LA and Nashville and Berlin and other places around the world. And they generate, they have this gift of generating massive amounts of content songs. Then they're paired with performers. Most performers aren't songwriters. Most performers need content that somebody else writes hits that somebody else writes. Right. And I felt like we were kind of a songwriters guild, but in the business sense, like we have this disease where we see opportunities where other people don't, and we kick out a lot of ideas. Some are good, some are bad, but 
but we keep honing the best ones and we've got the capability of turning those into hits. So in that sense, we're a singer songwriter. And that's an approach that works for us. It wouldn't work for every VC. I think right. it works for us because we've been both idea generators and we've been scaled operators. And so we're uniquely kind of skilled to attack a problem in a different way than most VCs are. Does that mean like the VC 1.0 model is dead? No, it doesn't. But does it mean that there is a different way that will kind of proliferate now? I think so, because you've got folks like us, you've got flagship that's generating, you know, 75 companies like Moderna and Indigo Ag. You've got right. Sutter Hill that's generating companies like, Blank, like right. Prism and Pure and Snowflake. Exactly. Systematically degenerating companies. And I think there is another way that's being created, and I would call that VC 2.0. Does it mean that's going to be a 100% of the market? No. But is it going to be a significant percent of the market? I'd say probably isn't a decade from now. It probably is a, a significant chunk of the early stage market. Yeah. Because if you if you have the idea, you should, you get to keep the economics. <laughs> if you don't, you're, yeah, yeah. you don't. Yeah. yeah. If you own 50% of that company at the end of the funding cycle, 50% beats a 20% carry every day of the week. So right. I think just the capital, rational capital will follow down this path. And you're much more invested in sort of seeing the company through and working oh, with yeah. it in a way yeah. that if you Absolutely. don't, you're like, ah, oh, listen, I'm on to the next one. You, Good luck. You have my That's money. Right. You know? That's right. And we're certainly seeing that at the downturn where, you know, people are sort of shrugging off their losses in some cases. Yeah. I think our co-investors know we're not walking away from these. We're going to make them work. And so that gives investors that invest alongside of us a lot of comfort. Sweet, John, this was great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. It's been fun to talk to you. Thanks a bunch. That was my interview with John McNeil, investor at DVX, former executive at Lyft and Tesla. Thanks for listening. Shout out to our editor, Tommy Heron, my chief of staff, Riley Kinsella. The wonderful music is brought to you by Young Chomsky. I'm Eric Newcomer. Like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe to the newsletter, newcomer.co. See you next week. Thanks. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.